This is Bonjour Chai, the Nobody Knows the Troubles I've Seen edition. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto and David Sklar in Calgary. We are your Frozen Chosen. On today's show, we speak to Max Eisen to find out what it's like presenting his survivor testimony across Canada. And we talk about a new study on Holocaust education in high schools. We are recording today on the International Holocaust Remembrance Day, so I need to know, David, what is it like having a birthday so close to such a somber occasion? You know, it's pretty standard. What did I do? I I attended a synagogue board meeting last night, and I researched the Holocaust. What more could a boy ask for on his birthday? Yeah, I mean... It's, uh, you, you didn't ask for it. And uh, I think the International Holocaust Day came out, I think, officially after you were born. But uh, I don't know, I guess it's... They did not get the memo that the 26th was my birthday. Yeah. Oh, well. Well, all of this is my way of saying happy birthday, David. Happy birthday. Toda Raba. Many more. Thank you both. How are you guys all doing? I am uh, not that happy to be back in the snow. <laughs> There's still so much of it in Toronto and they're not equipped. The roads are messy. Yeah, not good. Uh, What's Montreal like? You live in Canada, you know. No, I lived in BC for five years. I'm in denial. You're spoiled, got Avi, it. Avi, what's what's it like in Montreal right now? It's it's cold. It's cold. Yeah. The snow is here, but like we've moved it out of the way. We know what we're doing, but like it's cold. It's been minus Ooh. 25 to minus 15 like all week. Uh, yeah, not fun. It's uh, as my kids say, it's indoor recess yeah. time. Fair enough. So uh, let's get to our first topic. A new study came out this week of North American teens on the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. The study was co-sponsored by the province of Ontario and Liberation 75, which is an organization that promotes Holocaust education. The initial report highlighted the fact that there was insufficient education about the Holocaust and anti-Semitism in general, and that more robust teaching should be presented to students in schools. Before we get more into it, we should note that there have been some questions about the results yesterday, and there have been some revising of the press materials as a result of that. Initially, the study was presented as saying that one-third of students thought the Holocaust was fake or exaggerated, while the true numbers were that only 10% thought the Holocaust was fake or exaggerated, and another 22% didn't know or weren't sure how to answer that question. Um, But as remained, we see that 67% said it happened and that it is fairly described as it had happened. Alana, I feel like you've got some thoughts. Always. Oh, well, I actually heard about a similar study that was done uh, at some point in the pandemic. I think I might have brought this up on a previous episode, but I remember I was living with three 24-year-olds at the time, and I was like, oh my God, you guys, this is terrible. And they were like, eh, this seems about accurate. I feel like a lot of people I know don't, don't think it happened. And I was like, how are you not bothered by this? And they were all Jewish, for the record. Um, yeah, I don't know. What came up for me uh, reading this new study was just like the dangers of social media. I listened to uh, our sister podcast um, on the daily uh, Ellen's episode yesterday, um, talking with people who had made the study from what I understand. The thing that really stuck out to me was um, how a lot of these kids were getting the information about the Holocaust from social media and video games. And social media, as they said, is one of the most dangerous places to learn about things. There's so much anti-Semitism online and just general craziness. Um, 
So that made me just think about the dangers of these days, how everyone can be a journalist, quote unquote, and there's so much misinformation out there. And to me, that's the thing that kind of made me afraid for the future generation. I'm going to defend the video game community over here because I remember growing up as like an 11, 12, 13 year old boy. I got so much good information on history uh, of what was happening around the world. I played all these video games about World War II and I got to know about like who were the generals, what were their, their tactics, what was going on. That, that got me excited to learn more, and I wanted to research more about different history, such as World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, the Korean War that I was playing online, and it sparked an interest in me learning more about history. And were they, act like, once you were looking it up, was it accurate information? So, yeah, like, you know, it's obviously stylized and everything, but you're playing Patton, you're playing Churchill, you're playing Tojo, you're, you know, you can play the Germans as well, too. So it's, like, knowledge and information that these are the, uh, the battles that they incurred. Then I got to watch movies like Battle of the Bulge and The Longest Day with my father, which was a great bonding experience with him. So it's, like, it was a first step. It's not the only thing going on. I just think, in general... Kids are going to know very little about the Holocaust, but they're going to know very little about history in any event. I'd be surprised if they even knew when World War I started and ended, or even who the actors were, or even who won the war to begin with. Oh my, that's a pretty low bar. <laughs> it is kind of a low bar, and it has to do with the state of history class, or school in general, or the education system we have, where they're not going to be learning any of these details. Well, I'm not going to throw, I, I actually agree with you, but also I'm not throwing the schools under the bus here. Right. There is a oh, that's a good uh, throwing, throwing the schools under the school bus. <laughs> schools <laughs> under the bus. Um, anyways, um, look, there is a finite amount of time in school. Anything that we add to the school curriculum is going to come at the expense of something else. And honestly, like everything is getting squeezed. Everything is getting pushed out of the way. And teachers are doing what they can with however much information they can. And at the end of the day, like we hit the end of the day and School's over and you got to leave and you can't just say, well, we have to teach you this and we have to teach you this and we have to teach you this. And everybody wants their special interest to be presented in school because it's the most important thing in the world. I, I, I have a hard time imagining, honestly, that the Holocaust is one of those things that we're going to squeeze out in favor of so many other things that need to get taught. I'll give you a great example of this. Um, and sorry for you know getting on my pedestal. So this week, um, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is a known anti-vaxxer, for decades, um, ha was speaking at a rally. Um, and I want to give you the quote that he gave at this anti-vax rally. Uh, quote, even in Hitler, Germany, you could, you could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You could hide in an attic like Anne Frank did. Right. Um, I visited in 1962 East Germany with my father and met people who had climbed the wall and escaped. So it was possible. Many died true, but it was possible. So honestly, what would you rather teach? Holocaust education so that this guy actually has better facts about the Holocaust or uh, science literacy so that this guy is not being an anti-vaxxer and having complete science denialism for decades and decades. And if we had to pick one, honestly, I say, let's skip the Holocaust. Okay. I'd rather kids learn about how to teach, uh, how to, how to like learn about science facts than anything else. There's so little. But aren't we already doing the science facts? But we're not because so many people That's are not. in the curriculum. So many people are not learning how to discern facts from reality. And in our history curriculum, you have 5,000 years of human history like distilled down into like one textbook. You're going to miss facts about so many things. Well... Maybe you're, you're bringing up an interesting point. I'm going to twist it a little bit to say that maybe that's what we need to be teaching, not necessarily science 
focused only, but teaching kids how to discern fact from fiction and to do their research properly, because that would actually cover both the Holocaust and the vaccine stuff. Just saying. That's a really that's a really good point, Alana. I think we need to learn how to reevaluate all this information that is being thrown at us so quickly on social media that it would be really important for kids to learn and discern between fact from fiction itself. And Avi, to your point, I think in a perfect world, yes, we would be learning about it because I think it's an important subject that has affected the world at large in terms of Holocaust education. And it's pathetic that right now, a Tennessee school board is now pulling the Art Spiegelman book, Mouse, because it depicts nudity and has harsh language. So we can go one way or the other where kids know nothing about the Holocaust and you have school boards that are now actively pulling wonderful graphic illustrated novels about the Holocaust because it, it, it makes them uncomfortable down in the South too. So there are some education um, school boards that are actually doing harm and, and, and doing it badly. Yeah, but that's not, I mean, relevant to the same point. You can say, fine, you don't want to teach Mouse. Uh, I may disagree with that, but there's plenty of other great books about the Holocaust that you can teach that aren't going to make you feel uncomfortable. Uh, at the end of the day, right, a school board that says we don't have I have, have a feeling anything will make them uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. But, but the bigger problem, really, and I know that you're going to push back against this, Avi, but the fact that it's not mandated to teach it is a little bit scary. And this is something that was also brought up um, in Ellen's interview is that the ones that most need to learn about the Holocaust aren't. So the, the reason why some students are learning about this is their teacher's prerogative, not the school system. So if some schools have a teacher that doesn't seem to think that it's important, even though it's really recent, kids will not grow up knowing what anti-Semitism looks like. And that is how it perpetuates. And it's not just about us. There's so many other... Yeah, not, exactly. It's not about us. No, I know, but I'm, I'm not saying uh, that us above others. I'm just saying that this is a very recent, major, major genocide that happened. And yeah. if kids aren't learning and, and about you know it, what? that's a little scary to you me. You know what? As a Jew, I would say in the public school systems in Canada, um, if you have a day to teach about something, um, I would say skip the genocide and go talk about... Skip the Holocaust and talk about the uh, indigenous genocide that happened in our lands that we're still not you know, recovered from completely, that we're still dealing with the repercussions, both? that there's still so much, if we don't have time, because there's a certain, if, certain amount of time that you have sure, to be able to teach. One for like one hour a year on International Holocaust Memorial Day, they teach about it. Even just that, that's not even instituted. Yeah, there's, there, you're pulling out time from being able to teach about everything else. I see my kids' curriculums. They're yeah, but crammed they go to every day and they're skipping. That's different. You can't no, even private school Fine, but it doesn't, no, because they have extra time. They go to school a lot longer than anybody else does. Yeah, I know. I went right, they're the finished system. school at four forty. Yeah, it's it's un like, but they there is already a fully packed day of of learning that has to happen, and and the curriculums are full, and anything that we add to that curriculum is going to be at the expense of something else. So I'm going to ask you, what are you willing to pull out of a school curriculum in order to teach about the Holocaust? Ooh. The gym. <laughs> I, I want to I want to avoid dodgeball at all costs. Oh my god! I so I'm so with you. I got hit in the face once. It was really painful. The gym was an incredibly. Um, I sense the traumas that you it had. It was a about terrible that. time for me growing up with gym class. Me too. I hated gym class. I used to try to get out of it as much as possible. So wow, in lieu of gym class, we replace it with yeah. Holocaust studies, <laughs> and that'll make everyone feel better. I, I'm going to add one more point on top of this, um, because at the end of the day. 
Um, David, you were the one that was saying that you learned so much from video games. Why are we spending millions of dollars? Why does an organization like Liberation 75, which sounds like a noble organization, but is basically devoted to promoting more Holocaust education in school? And it sounds notable. sounds nice. But but they're spending so much money. Does it work? Um, are, are, you know, they're... If the purpose of, you know, and they say this, they say this in their report, right? The lessons of the Holocaust are clear. First, that we must always stand up to hatred, intolerance, and dehumanization of all people. And second, that indifference to prejudice communicates consent for that prejudice. These takeaways can be applied universally, end quote, right? So um, have we have we learned those lessons? No. Clearly, the goals know, of- we? Uh, there's genocides happening all the time, right? There is yeah, hatred know, and indifference. So clearly- instead of saying we just need to throw more Holocaust education to people, why don't you be a little more effective? Why do we spend millions of dollars on Holocaust museums if the entire point of Holocaust museums is to educate people? But as people like David said, um, they learn much more from video games than from museums or school. So the Liberation 75 should create a wonderful, great video game around the Holocaust and send it out for free so that people can have an amazing time learning about it. Or they should set up better TikTok accounts that will counter the TikTok accounts that are not, you know, go to where the kids are and not where the kids aren't and stop building museums and throwing ineffective Holocaust education to people, right? And spending all this money on this. Well, there was that girl, was she on TikTok or Instagram where she like reposted herself living in color in, in, you know, contemporary lights as a girl, a Jewish girl growing up and living through the Holocaust. It got some flack, but it also some people I think in Israel, the Israeli government really recommended it to sort of learn through social media about the Holocaust and what it was like for a little girl growing up in Europe at the time. I don't know. I don't think all the museums are useless. You really think that there there shouldn't be Holocaust museums at all? Is that what you're saying? Or you're just saying don't make continue to make more? I, I, I I'm I'm saying I'm saying that there are five new Holocaust museums or several, at least I think three or four going up in Canada in the next few years. And are there any museums devoted to the indigenous genocide? Are there any, you know, things that, that are, you know, that are, how many people, how many people go to the Holocaust museums unless they are mandated to by It does schools? feel like a chore. It feels like something that a student, right? Yeah. These are, and they're important. And, yeah. and if it's a chore and if it's a mandate from the school system, I think kids will tune it out and be like, oh, this is educational. Right. Oh, I have to have a right of test about this. And again, mm-hmm. I don't want to learn about this. As soon as it's it's in, in one ear and out the other, they will zone out and they'll be like, oh, whatever. I learned about it, but I don't know anything about it. So what do you suggest, David? More video games. This is a really hot take, you guys. I, uh, what is it? I think we have to accept sometimes that, you know, it, more Holocaust survivors are passing away with each with each year, and it is removing us self from, it is becoming more and more history in a sense. And I think within the Jewish community, we are worried that with the rise of anti-Semitism, as people forget about the Holocaust, that it's going to rise up again. I think that's where we're coming from as a community. If more people learn about the Holocaust, yeah. they will feel more of a kinship or a connection to Jews and the Jewish community, and anti-Semitism will decrease. That is our worry. That's where I think where I'm coming from, where some of us are coming from within in this community. That's what we're after, is to lower anti-Semitism as opposed for everyone to be mandated to learn about the Holocaust. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think that there, to add to that, I think people need to learn more about present day anti-Semitism too, because I once had someone tell me that they thought that anti-Semitism ended at the Holocaust, which is also very problematic. I, I think that there's things that we learn and there's things that we learn as we get older. And this is just one of those things that you learn with time, hopefully, and with experience. And that I don't expect high schools to ex- 
to have 13 year olds have very sophisticated knowledge of these things or 15 year olds. Um, I think that it's going to come with time. And like you said, the more Jews you meet, the more experience you have as an adult, the more you're going to be able to be more sensitive about um, about anti-Semitism today or about genocides in general. Well, enough about us. What do you think? We'd like to hear your thoughts on the topic by emailing us at bonjour at the cjn.ca or telling us in the Slack channel. You can join the Slack channel by emailing us at bonjour at the cjn.ca and asking us, and we'll get you an invite. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom-designed jewelry along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Max Eisen is an author, public speaker, and Holocaust educator. He wrote the award-winning book By Chance Alone, a remarkable true story of courage and survival at Auschwitz, and travels throughout North America to speak to students, teachers, and other community groups about his experiences as a concentration camp survivor. Max is also the recipient of this year's Order of Canada for his contributions to Holocaust education and for his promotion of transformational dialogue on human rights, tolerance, and respect. Max, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you. Now, Max, for people who are not familiar with your background, would you mind explaining a bit about your story? Well, I'm, uh, I was born in Czechoslovakia, where Jews had 20 golden years from 1919 to 1939. The part of the country we lived in the eastern part of Slovakia, in a, Jew, in a community in my town of Moldova. There were 90 Jewish families. It was a beautiful Jewish community. Jews practically made the town work. We had a beautiful synagogue. We Jews have lived in that part of the world for about 1,800 years. Uh, Jews were living there when it was a Roman. It was the Roman Empire. Hungary was the eastern province of the Roman Empire. So we've been living there for a long time. Our life changed drastically when uh, Hitler came to power. We were neighbors of Germany. I was born in 1929, so I was. I became aware of this in 1938. My father had a crystal radio. It was during the Munich Conference. I didn't know about the Munich Conference. I was nine years old, but my father's friends came to our home to listen to the speech that Hitler was going to make in Berlin. And uh, we spoke uh, Hungarian, Slovak, and German. And I remember a one-liner, this poison was coming out of the radio. Hitler said, we're wearing the Juden Ausradir, and we're going to eradicate the Jews from the face of the world. And um, I knew that something bad was coming down the road. I didn't know what, but I remember the faces of my father's friends. My father was in his late 30s. I had two uh, younger brothers. I had a baby sister. My uh, grandparents, my paternal grandparents, and my maternal side of the family. We were a large family, and we lived in a large home. Three families, my paternal grandparents in the center of this big house. My uncle and aunt, they had no children, and my parents and my siblings. A large property, my grandfather's lumber yard was on the premises. And uh, it was truly a place where... Um, I had a wonderful childhood and memories of it. All that was erased in a matter of one year under the Hungarians. 
see uh, Hungarian Jews were still in their homes in 1944, not knowing what was happening just across the Carpathian Mountains in occupied Poland. Can you imagine? Not knowing is a terrible thing. We were deported the first day of Pesach, the first day of Passover, Hungarian Jews were gathered into brickyards and near railway, near major railway stations, and spending a few weeks in a brickyard, and then loaded into cattle cars and shipped off to Auschwitz in May of 1944. And the Jews took a terrible, terrible disaster. 450,000 Hungarian Jews were murdered by gas in less than three months. I survived. I had two cousins that survived, one from my father's side, one from my mother's side, out of approximately 80 people. From my town of 500 Jews, less than 20 returned. It was a terrible, terrible disaster, a catastrophe. So uh, this is my background. I was liberated in May the 6th, 1945, by an American tank unit. I made my way back home. There was no such thing as home, but I know where else to go. I was very sick. Eventually, I wound up in a yeshiva in a place called Marienbad, which is a world famous spa, not far from Prague. And I spent almost three years there. This was my home with about 35 to 40 teenagers who were all, they're all orphans. Every day was a challenge. It took me three years to become a normal person, uh, both physically and mentally. Yeah. Arrived in Canada in 1949. I'll be forever grateful to this country and gave me a new life, eventually a new family. I had a successful career in business and I've been a speaker for 32 years, spoken to hundreds of thousands of students. And would you believe it that 77 years later, 77 years later, almost to the date, this was last year, I had a call from the Wiesenthal Center. There's an email here from Slovakia, from my town of Moldova. They're looking for a Tiborizen, this is my name, Tiborizen. This is a teacher that is writing this email. We would like him to talk to my students. I just about, can you imagine it? Instantly when I heard this, I remembered the exodus of 500 Jews on the first day of Passover from town of Moldova. It was a terrible, terrible event. Leaving town, never to come back. And 77 years later, here's a letter. Anyhow, so I contacted her by email and we set up a um, Zoom. I wanted to see who this person was. As it happens, she said that her grandmother lived on the same street, waited. What happened was I spoke to about 400 of her students. I spoke to these students for four and a half hours. I spoke my heart out. I told them about approximately 75% of the Jewish families that I could remember. So this is what I'm doing in a nutshell. I'm speaking and speaking. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your story. And Mike, next question for you. You've been telling your story throughout your whole lifetime since you were liberated. So what does the future of Holocaust education look like, do you think, now that survivors are becoming fewer and fewer, and at some point there will not be any living people to tell their own stories firsthand? Well, this is a very interesting question. We think about that. But you know, the second and third generation, they need to have a look at themselves. We have done our job, you know, we are in our 90s. I've lost many of my friends and colleagues who are speakers. 
something like this, I don't think should be or will be forgotten. Uh, we remember all these terrible things that happened in our history. Tisha B'Av, 70 AD, the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and the Second Temple. We remember. Are we not going to remember this? It will be at our own peril. That's a good point. I always think about this. The Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, there were about 50,000 kids, teenagers. There were 50 parties there. Aguda, Mizrahi, religious and not religious, you name it. And everybody was doing their own battle. And they, when it came down to a real battle, they said, look, if we don't join together, we're not going to make it. This is what Jews need to remember. If we're going to try and fight each uh, their own battle, we are not going to make it. Last November, you were yeah. with students in Saskatchewan, and you mentioned that you said, I see shades of pre-World War II. Oh. Can, you, can you explain what you meant by that? Yes, I would say in politics, I see a lot of that. First of all, I see the propaganda and how propaganda works. You see, it started with words. There's a lot of propaganda and people get on board. You need to know uh, what happened to Czechoslovakia. Czechoslovakia was delivered to the Nazis, to Hitler on a platter, by a stroke of a pen, not a single bullet was fired. The prime minister of Britain, Chamberlain, and the prime minister of France were asked to come to this crucial meeting, we Czechoslovakian Jews. I mean, I was just a kid, I was nine years old. I didn't know about the Munich conference, but I knew that something bad was going on. Hitler simply sized up these two prime ministers. Britain and France were the guarantors of Poland, Czechoslovakia, and Yugoslavia. This was the Versailles Treaty in 1919 after the First World War. These two democratic countries have to come to our aid if we are attacked. We were neighbors of Nazi Germany. So they went to this meeting. Hitler demanded part of my country and they delivered this part of the country to Hitler for a document that he signed, Peace in Our Time. And I look at it that Israel is the Czechoslovakia today. And you know, when they, the US sat down a month or two ago, speaking with Iran on the, this nuclear business, the foreign minister, he said he's going to uh, Britain and he's going to France. And boy, oh boy, did that give me a hit. You know, I said, here we are going back to Britain and France, same disaster. While the meeting wasn't canceled, it went on. This is in some way, if we do not learn from the past, we are, we are going to repeat the same mistakes. This is just one example. There are many other examples. I'm curious what, just yesterday, there was a rally in the United States with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And he was comparing the vaccine mandates, uh, everything going on with COVID to the Holocaust again. You know, he was even quoted as saying, even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps into Switzerland, you could hide in an annex like uh, like Anne Frank. However, nowadays with these vaccine mandates, everyone is comparing more and more to what the Jews and many people experienced in the Holocaust. I'm wondering how that makes you feel. This is the, utterly the, <clears throat> the dumbest thing that people are talking, you know, they don't know. You cannot understand what it means to be sitting in Auschwitz as a slave laborer, day after day after day, men and women without garments, you know, women with a rag, men with underwear, without underwear, starving 300 calories a day. What the heck are these people talking about? And you know what worries me? The terrible anti-Semitism in government. This is what, this is what scares me. Any comparison, is, a, is, a, is an awful thing. 
You know, I think it was Ellie Wiesel that coined this word Holocaust, but it's been used and abused by so many different ways. A car flames up, oh, it's, it was a Holocaust. This is compared to a Holocaust. We don't say Holocaust. This was a Shoah, it was a catastrophe. You know, the war was finished in Europe. The world celebrated. There was no celebration for the Jewish community. It was total destruction in Europe. Synagogues were left empty. They're falling apart. We have not been able to re recover to the same number that we had as Jews pre-World War II. There were 18 million Jews in the world. We are down to 16 and a half million. We have lost big in the United States. According to the average birth rate I read somewhere, there should have been 30, over 30 million Jews in the United States today. Imagine a number. What are we down to? So what, four and a half million or something? Five? There were six million. People are grasping for straws because they don't know history. They are ignorant. I remember one thing. If you want to remember somebody who really knew what the situation was in the Second World War, who practically won the war, was Winston Churchill. And I read, I read a lot of books. Winston Churchill said during the Battle for Britain, when Britain was being bombed to smithereens by the Luftwaffe, and they were down in pilots. The pilots were up in the air 24-7. And uh, he went on the radio, and he said to the people of the island, he said, no matter what we have to do, we must win this battle. If we don't, our freedom and our way of life will vanish into oblivion. And we are standing right at that spot today. We need leaders. I think we lack good leadership. We are too uh, split. So many organizations in the Jewish community, they've been at it, they've been coming at us for many years and we did not realize of what is coming down the road, you see. You know, I look at this and how come that we are repeating the same mistakes all over again? You see, Hungarian, Hungarian Jews in Budapest was a very prominent Jewish organizations, you know, under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there were a million Jews living there. The Jewish community, the Jewish agency in Budapest knew in 1943 what was going on across the Carpathian Mountains. We didn't know. In 1944, do you think we would have been sitting around? They didn't tell us. We must not repeat the same mistakes. It is everybody's problem. Look, this anti-Semitism that is happening here, I keep telling people, this is not a Jewish problem. This is everybody's problem. This is the way it started in Europe by words. It ended in horrible places. So for God's sakes, we need to learn from the past. This is what bothers Holocaust survivors. I'm amazed that even with this anti-Semitism, I get so many calls to speak. There are many good people around that realize, and these are not Jewish people, and I'm, you know, it's amazing that many non-Jewish people who are very sympathetic and they understand what's happening. I had, I had so much feedback from people after this honor that I received. I had so many emails and letters. So somehow we need to get all this goodwill together and work with it. You know, this is very important. There has been times where people have brought up the idea of the Holocaust tourism industry, where people are going on the March of the Living constantly, where it really becomes an entire focus of an industry that's built up, where it's almost become a bit of a, 
for a lack of a better word, like a tourism, an amusement park where people are going into Auschwitz constantly. And I wonder how that makes you feel as this kind of industry has been built up over the decades. Yeah, there is an industry, that's true. And I don't know how you can do it any other way. I'm not sure. Uh, I've been going on the March of the Living with groups, went with teenagers and adults, I think 24 times. And I went with the Wiesenthal Center probably about 15 times. You know, some 2 million visitors come to Auschwitz every year. It's a big deal. But how else can you uh, organize it? It's, it's, I'm not sure. Kids are being... Um, you go on a March of the Living. I think they have several Shabbatons to train these, well, not to train them, but they have survivors speaking to these teenagers to prepare them. It's, um, we're trying everything. You know, we have all these organizations, March of the Living, Birthright. I don't see that we've come up with anything better to try to keep these teenagers in the fold. Uh, so I'm wondering how many are going, who are going to, um, benefit and carry on the word and i see many kids young you know teenagers that went they became pillars of the community you know i think people that have the smarts that are understanding they can understand why we have this perhaps we have these because we've seen that people are going to forget perhaps or uh, it's a reminder Thinks I'm very moved by these museums in Kiev. They have a beautiful reminder in the forest. I go to a, a town in Tykochin in Poland, on the eastern border of Poland, where the Einsatzgruppen uh, were killing Jews. And Tykochin is a little place, I think about 5,000 Jews were taken out to the forest and murdered in two days. There's a iron rod fence and a plaque. And you know, it's inside the birch forest. I walked through for about a kilometer from where the buses are to the site where the mass graves are. And on a beautiful sunny day or on a rainy day when the water is coming down from the trees, and let's say on a sunny day, you can hear birds and the sun rays are coming through the canopy of the trees. And all of a sudden you're in front of a big fence, several fences, and they, um, a stone marking now that this is a Jewish cemetery. And I keep wondering how in God's land there's such a terrible thing that happened here. Mothers holding their children shot in the head. And uh, this is the biggest monument that you can see. It shocks me to the core. I was just wondering before we wrap it up, you've spent the majority of your life reliving almost in a way what you went through, which is extremely traumatic. How do you cope with that? since you're having to retell your story over and over and over again. Uh, this is, I'm so committed to this. I mean, I have sometimes four, five, six presentations to do. And I was, I was very busy right through this time. I mean, next week, I've got a big week. I don't know how many presentations, um, Holocaust Remembrance. It's a job that I'm doing and you need to think about it, how you're going to speak, who the group is. Every group is different. Teenagers or public school, kids in lower grades, or adults, it is something that I'm committed to doing and I need to do the best job that I can. It is not easy, but um, you uh, put everything aside and you, uh, and you get up there and you have butterflies in your stomach every time you have to go and speak until I get there and I see the eyes of 
the group that I'm going to speak to, sometimes the chemistry doesn't work, but most of the time it does. So uh, that gives me the uh, courage to get up there and keep speaking. So <clears throat> I want them to learn. I don't, want them, I don't want to cry when I do this. I don't want to make my audience cry. I want them to learn. The feedback that I get from students is absolutely amazing. They're using my book. They say, when I feel that I don't want to study, I don't want to do this. Mr. Eisen, I read a few pages from your book and I'm back on the straight and narrow again. So this gives me such a impetus to keep on doing this. You're a speaker, you have to take care of your own soul too, you know, because it is really wearing. So, so far, I'm very fortunate that um, during this period of this, whatever we are going through, that I have these tools to speak to people. I spoke to um, Toronto District School Board last year uh, from their boardroom in Toronto here on Young Street. I spoke to 15,000 students. I spoke at the Catholic District School Board, they're my neighbors here, to 8,000 students in the morning, and they repeated the same uh, program in the afternoon to another 8,000. So I would have never been able to uh, put together numbers like that by traveling. Uh, you know, I, I did a lot of traveling. Say if I went to Thunder Bay, I was there for two days or two and a half days. I had to give two or three uh, presentations a day. <laughs> you know, that, can you imagine? That is really wearing. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on to talk to us today. And thank you for continuing to share your story with so many people um, around the world. And hopefully we'll get a chance to talk to you again soon. Our word of wisdom this week comes from Chloe Shaham DuPont at King David High School in Vancouver. Hi, my name is Chloe Shaham DuPont and I'm a grade 12 student at King David High School. This week's parasha is called Mishpatim, which translates to laws in Hebrew, and it's when God gave the Jewish people laws regarding the consequences of things like assault, theft, kidnapping, and murder. And although this sounds very dark, it's also the parasha where God promised to the Jewish people the land of Israel, as long as they didn't follow the ways of their current inhabitants. To this, the Jews responded with Naseh Venishma, which translates to we will do and we will understand. Why would the Jewish people so easily do what God wants of them and only then understand it? We can interpret this as the Jewish people wanted to show God that they are devoted to him and will do whatever he asks of them. But the question is, why would they say venishma? Nishma can mean to hear, but in this case, it means to understand. So why is it so important for us as the Jewish people to understand the mitzvot and laws that we follow? The answer to this is simply because it's a part of who we are. We are God's chosen nation and our name is Bnei Israel which means to struggle with God. We are supposed to do what God asks of us and then question and struggle with it before applying it into our life. This is kind of like your parents. You know that they love you and that they want the best for you, but sometimes you don't understand the lessons that they teach you until much later. Like our parents, God only wants what is best for us, and through questioning his lessons and mitzvot, we can enrich our life by getting the true meaning of our actions. Shabbat shalom. Now it's time for our nachas, where we uh, talk about what's newish and Jewish in our lives and making us feel good this past week. 
David, what's your nachas? I think this might actually be a pre-nachas because it goes to the doctors and nurses at the Montreal Jewish General Hospital who, as we speak, are operating on my father. So my dad is uh, about to undergo surgery right now, and I just hope he makes a quick and speedy recovery. So thank you to everyone who is working uh, and probably very burdened and and stressed out right now. So thanks. Uh, David, we wish your father well, and uh, hopefully everything will come out great. Alana, what's your nachos? Uh, so on my plane ride home from Florida back to Toronto, I watched The Goonies for the first time, which is one of the most Jewish 80s movies I think I've Whoa. ever seen. <laughs> um, for those of you who haven't seen it, there's a character called Chunk, who's played by the actor Jeff Cohen. And uh, there's so many references. Like he talks about the bullet holes being the size of matzo balls. At what point he gets like into a dangerous situation and then starts praying in Hebrew, which made me laugh out loud. Um, even in the credits at the beginning of the movie, there was just one Jewish name after the other. And I was like, wow, Steven Spielberg does it again. Um, yeah. So I know I'm like really late on this train. I was born in 93. So there's that. I will actually watch a lot of old movies. This one's totally on me. But anyway, it was it was fun and Jewish. I've never seen The Goonies. There you go. Not just me, David. My God. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm going to go for a very, very young nachas today. Um, this is uh, my nachas t- this week is for Miriam and Zovin. I don't know if you've seen her or heard her on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube. She is making the rounds. Um, she is uh, taking the guise of a uh, typical TikTok influencer look, um, but she's doing the Daf Yomi, which is the daily oh, wow. like, page of Talmud that everybody reads together. I'm going to play you uh, one of them right now. Shalom friends, this is Daf Reactions, Megillah 27. In today's Daf, we're learning why certain sages received blessings. This is one of my favorite. So Raf's walking along and he sees Rav Huna and what does he say? He's like, what's up with this fashion choice? Because you are not wearing a belt, you're wearing a bit of straw tied around your waist. And Rav Huna's like, yeah, I know, I couldn't afford Kiddush, so I sold my belt. And Rav is like, oh, bestie. I hope going forward you're just covered head to toe in silk. Hashem, we should give this to you. You deserve this. So flash forward, Rav Huna's attending a wedding and he goes into that room where everybody has put their coats on the bed because He's tired. I understand that. This is highly relatable. He lays down on the bed, but because he's short, nobody sees him. The women come in and they start unwrapping their silks and throwing them on the bed. On Rav Huda, thus fulfilling Rav's blessing in a very unexpected way. If I was Rav, I would have laughed my ass off when I heard about that. But instead, Rav goes to Rav Huda and he's like, bro, bro code. Why, when I gave you that blessing, didn't you say, and to you as well, because this is what I wanted to happen to me. And from this, we learn that Rav was not really a very supportive friend. When something good happens to your friend, you don't be jealous. It doesn't happen to you. That's kind of epic. That's Daf reactions. <laughs> That's yeah. epic. I don't, I, I'm not on TikTok, but like, it kind of makes me want to just watch that one channel. Is that, is it called a channel? What are the cool kids? She's on, it? she's on YouTube. She's on Instagram. She puts all of her stuff across all okay. of them. It's, so I don't have to sign it's up It's great. <laughs> you could learn about Talmud um, from uh, something in a language that makes sense to a lot more people now than um, the Talmud did before. Perhaps That's she so should be fun. teaching the next generation of Holocaust education on TikTok. Absolutely, David. This is uh, goes back to our earlier topic there. And yeah, we should be having more interesting voices online um, instead of just saying, let's combat, you know, apathy by uh, giving more stuff in schools. Miriam and Zovin, shout out to you. You're making Talmud cool and relevant um, and go check her out. Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending January 28th, Parashat Mishpatim. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by Sokald. 
We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. I'm Avi Feingold. I'm Ilana Zakon. And I'm David Sklar. Yeah.